just a non-starter for me, even even personal values aside, there was no way for me to viably start an agricultural enterprise with taking what I was given at the end of every crop. You know, you, you grow your steers and you send, sell them off to be auctioned at the local yards and you turn into a price taker and not a price maker. Uh, I come from different industries where we, we, we set our buy prices, we set our sell prices and then you've got to just manage the fat in the middle with your wages and overheads and to, it, it's laughable in the, in the other industries all around, every other industry every all around the world to uh, not know what you're selling for. The Biological Farming Roundtable podcast helps farmers explore innovative, low-input, regenerative and profitable farming systems. The Biological Farming Roundtable is sponsored by Nutrisoil, an award-winning biological liquid fertiliser made from a big worm farm. Nutrisoil's purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food. My name is Nicola Maddock. I work at Nutrisoil. I envisage a future where farmers are rewarded for producing nutrient-rich foods and consumers have this easily available to them. Today I'm joined by Aubrey entrepreneur Jacob Walkie. Family and food is his highest priority, driving his quest to build a community where farmers and conscious consumers are connected by shared values. Jacob has been farming for four years his learnings come from books and YouTube. He does not label himself as a perfectionist, just someone who takes opportunities when he sees them. What Jacob has done in those four years is remarkable. He leases land where he raises cattle, pigs and chickens, more as well, we'll talk about it, processes it, sells online, has opened to self-serve butchery and runs farm tours. He's changing the system of how farmers sell their produce which is what we're here to discuss today. I liken uh, Jacob to his own unique version of Joel Salatin and a similar model to Food Connect in Brisbane, who are both driven by a fairer food system for all farmers, but also educating consumers in the real cost of producing good, nutritious food. So welcome to the show today, Jacob. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're very pleased in our little studio here at Nutrisoil. Um, there is so much to cover, we've already been talking our heads off, um, but you've been farming for just four years now, tell us about how you got into agriculture. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, it's a YouTube rabbit hole story, but uh, essentially my family owns a, cycle, a bicycle shop in town, cycle station, and winters are quite quiet for us, wet, cold weather, and I was just starting to get into gardening, got married, wasn't going out with friends as much, uh, setting up our little nest at home and getting into the veggie patch. And at the bike shop during those cold winters, I thought I'd love to garden. So I actually bought myself a greenhouse and set it up in the car park at the bike shop and started watching organic gardeners on YouTube. And a little thumbnail came up on the suggested videos one day and it said something to the effect of this man buys land for $15 an acre. And I knew it was clickbait. But I thought that is really interesting. I want to know how to buy land at $15 an acre. And it was a video that Justin Rhodes did about Joel Salatin. And uh, the explanation was that with $15 an acre worth of infrastructure, he doubles his productivity, electric fences and water. And I thought I'd like to try that on my dad's block. Dad had 100 acres or has 100 acres and does not much with it. It's a lifestyle block. And that was my first uh, interest, first thing that piqued my interest really 
into animal production. And then I just went down this rabbit hole of organics and nutrient dense food and animal welfare. And I haven't been able to pull the handbrake on yet. <laughs> it doesn't stop. No, it doesn't stop. <laughs> So is there any reason um, that you wanted to look at growing food and organic, I mean, your family, has there been any health issues or? Nothing that we uh, consciously dealt with. I've always had respiratory issues, you know, I've never been able to breathe through my nose almost my whole life, skin rashes everywhere. And I didn't realise until a little bit into our food journey that things like uh, stomach pain and irregular bowel movements and all these things that we don't like talking about. Uh, weren't normal and so it was a little bit of a chicken and egg thing for me but I started eating better mainly based on welfare concerns you know not wanting to eat an animal out of a cage I'd rather eat one off pasture and all of a sudden I'm thinking my rash is going I can breathe through my nose again <clears throat> bowels feeling better and then really drilling down and chasing that experience and then finding out you know our, our knowledge of health in our society isn't the reality of what health can be and it's been a big wake-up call for our family and I've got two young sons at home my wife's pregnant with our third child boy or girl we're not sure we're, we're still taking bets uh, did you know the other two no no no, no we just wing it yeah. I always say that I like to keep it a surprise because it curbs my wife's uh, spending <laughs> you know that last month when she's when she's on the couch because she's because she's getting big and uncomfortable she can't be buying cute little pink tutus on Etsy because she doesn't offer it's a girl so we end up with lots of yellow clothing yes. <laughs> but uh, you know it's important for me that I give my sons the best start and even just in the last few months of our journey I've read this book by Dr. Catherine can't remember her surname it's called um, Deep Nutrition and then just finding out about uh, epigenetics and the uh, potential expression of our genetic information based on the quality of food we're eating and, and how our decisions based on our meals can have generational consequences in our progeny is um, exceptionally motivating to me. Like it could be a bit confronting for some people, uh, but for me, I, I, I find that really exciting and I've got my own little test pool of <laughs> progeny from my own bloodline. So it's a, it's a rabbit hole and we've been enjoying it. Yeah. Mm, I think people need to value food more and understand that it is medicine um, and that how food is grown is the chemical load, but it's also the lack of nutrition in that plant. And then that's what we're eating. So obviously we have chemicals in us and we have our hormones and enzymes not working and all of those types of things. So. I just don't understand why people don't realise that more, you know. And I have discussions with friends about it and they go, really? Like, it's just in our world, we know. Yes. But in in the general population, it's normal to go to the supermarket and not think too much. Sure. I go in there and I get depressed. Yes. Yeah, which is <laughs> don't know, go. I know what has been sprayed over these vegetables right. and how many times and what it is that I'm buying. Mm. I was up at Cropping Lane recently for the business awards, the state business awards, uh, and one of the one of the farmers who was at the event owned the paddock right next to where, where the event was, and he said it's 14 passes per crop on his tractors. You know, one's, one's seeding and then one's harvesting, and you've got 12 passes in the middle, which is management, you know, chemicals. It's, yeah. There's, there's a, lot, <laughs> a lot going into it. I don't think people realise the extent of it. But I think that the exciting part here is this whole systems change is what we need. So farmers are certainly trying to, but no one wants to work with chemicals. 
they're trying to reduce their chemical load and understanding that by reducing their fertiliser load that they can reduce their chemical load. So the whole world of regenerative agriculture has started. Um, but it's then what they're selling into. So um, there's vegetable farmers out there where the farmers, they have, they have the businesses that they sell to, those businesses supply the machinery, they uh, stipulate how it has to be grown, and then that's just the farmers' kind of hands are tied. Mm -hmm. So you've just walked in and said, well, I'm not selling into the sale yards because that's not real value for my food. I want better value for my food. And you're, you realise the cost of growing good, nutritious food is actually more expensive than consumers realise. Sure. Yeah. Well, it was just a non-starter for me. Even, even personal values aside, there was no way for me to viably start an agricultural enterprise with taking what I was given at the end of every crop. Yeah. You know, you, you grow your steers and you send, sell them off to be auctioned at the local yards and you turn into a price taker and not a price maker. Uh, I come from different industries where we, we, we set our buy prices, we set our sell prices and then you've got to just manage the fat in the middle with your wages and overheads and to it's laughable in the, in the other industries all around, every other industry every all around the world to uh, not know what you're selling for, you know? So it was just a non-starter for me. I would have I would have never got going, but you know, like you said, we've got beef, pork, chicken, lamb, eggs, and a few little um, ancillary enterprises like honey or, or fruit or whatever it might be. And we can set the price on all of it and put it in the market. We get direct market feedback, it sells or it doesn't and we can make decisions accordingly. And it's, I, I was talking to a friend the other day about this and he was a teacher and he was trying to wrap his head around how it all worked. And I said, how would you like to teach your class for 12 months? And then at the end of 12 months, go into the town square and auction off your services and get paid retrospectively. So you've done a whole year's salary, you've done a whole year's work with no income. And then at the end of the year, you auction it off so they can look at how good your teaching was and that'll make some impact, but also it depends how many teachers are there selling their labour? How many people are there wanting to buy their labour, whether it's raining? All these other effects as to what you get paid for the year and you just can't wrap your head around it. It's a different industry and we've found ourselves a little bit stuck in it. But what I see, um, <clears throat> what you have found is that marketing buffer. You can tell your story and you get people to come to your farm and see how you farm and the reason you farm that way. And then they've got that personal um, connection to the food and they want to buy your food. So um, going into the industrial agriculture, I have no idea who's, who's um, you know, made the flour. I don't know who has um, grown the wheat. So you've, you've really personalised the food and got that story there. And I think that's what farming needs in general. And then to... Um, be able to take out that middle person so you're not, you know, getting getting less for your food. Um, tell us about your farm. It's it's quite unique. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's we currently we've just taken over our third lease block. I don't own any land. So once we start moving animals to this lease block this month, we'll have uh, three hundred acres under our management, which is a weird metric because it sort of doesn't doesn't mean much, but it's sort of three horse paddocks. Yeah. in our area you know 100 acre paddock is a horse is a, a hobby block and it's I'm, I'm leasing all these properties off lifestylers essentially uh which is really interesting in and of itself 
We do beef, pork, chicken, lamb and eggs. And we've got all these animals on pasture-based systems. So obviously with our chickens and our pigs, we are importing a bit of grain because they're omnivores. Uh, but they're always rotating to fresh pastures around the farm. And then our, our ruminants, cows and sheep are doing holistic place grant grazing. So we've got maps and we, they sort of race around the farm and do their thing. And we're very, we've just started breeding cattle, but everything else we're trading in and out. So we're buying day old chicks for our meat bird enterprise. We're buying wiener piglets for our pork enterprise. And in the beginning, I was quite idealistic and I wanted to breed everything and do it all myself. And one, you start running out of land pretty quick. You know, you sort of, you can either have sows laying piglets and then a few grubbers on the side, or you, you can offset the sows to a friend up the road and then you have more land for your, your wieners. So I've, I've, I've been sort of building in a few efficiencies around that. And instead of being idealistic about doing it all myself, which ends up being a crippling workload, now I get to support community. So the guy by my piglets off, Jason up at Cootamundra, can build a business knowing that every three weeks he can send a truck of wieners down to me and I've got community instead of isolation. So I actually think that having that reliance on other people's uh, really exciting and it builds a bit of defense into the system. But everything's organic. We're not certified organic, so I get pillaged a little bit for using that word. We don't use certified organic feed, but we use no sides on the farm. There's no pesticide, herbicide or homicide on our farm. And we don't drench. We don't, haven't had the need to use any of those intensive inputs. How did your father feel, your mum and dad, when you started doing all this on their farm? Uh, supportive or? Reasonably supportive. So the, the, the main 100 acre block where we do all of our intensive uh, operations like eggs and broilers and that sort of thing is on my parents' 100 acres that I lease off them. And in the beginning, it was a bit of fun. And I just had a caravan and I broke a, like an old ratty caravan off Facebook. I put a bale of straw in the bottom. So no ventilation or anything and threw dad's 40 hens in it. He used to have for his eggs and you know, it stunk pretty quickly and, and I couldn't get away from the bike shop. So I was ringing up dad who's retired going, can you go down there and move the caravan and the dolly wheel would snap and he'd be out there in the mud getting the trailer bogged and a little bit of friction. Yeah. Uh, trying to try, well. yeah, before it was a business and, 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 and before I had any labor or anything like that, a bit of friction there. But uh, once I got to the point that I could uh, bring in a staff member, it eased all of that right off. And then I had to work on mum for a little while because I think that my shelters and caravans that I have roaming around the farmscape are quite endearing. They're, they're crooked and they're rusty uh, and they squeak. And I like the look of them in the paddock. I think that it sort of, it fits, it's, it's postcard worthy. Uh, you don't get this glare off them, you know, they sort of, they sort of sit in the landscape and uh, mum didn't like that at all. Yeah, you know, when I build my chicken sheds, I use all upcycled materials the best I can, so it doesn't cost much. And so you end up with this shed cladded with five different colors of color bond and i like it but uh, mum didn't so i think she's got over that now but that was a bit of point of contention for a little while they've got a beautiful home i've been out on your farm tour so yeah. and, and i understand like that they're probably retired aren't they? yes. yeah and then having to go out and do things for you when, yep. when they just want their retirement that's right yeah so you sorted that out that's good yeah we worked through that yeah um, how many people do you have working on there at the moment? We've got two at the farm and two in the butchery, and then a, um, some casual help for the weekends. Okay. Yep. So you've still got the bike shop? Yes. And the cafe? Yes. And pub? Yes. Is there three businesses anymore? Uh, we run a dot com for the bicycle store as well, so it's a separate 
that's in a separate building with a separate team and uh, business structure. And I breed dogs, which I'm trying, I, I basically blended into the farm enterprise now, but for a while that was run fairly autonomously off to the side. Well, I mean, animals are in, like small dogs, beautiful dogs. I know what you've got. You've got the Schnauzers. little, yeah, they're just yep. adorable. They're in big demand. Yes. Like, you could nearly get as much for one of those as what you could, if not more, for a cow. <laughs> well, like, if you're selling it the direct to the market in terms of the sales yards, the dogs are worth more than cows. Yeah, yep. absolutely. Yeah, so why not? I mean, that's just sucking. Well, my whole thing is, you know, everyone, everyone wants a puppy and no one wants a puppy breeder. You know, like think about the, the tone and the, the, the um, animosity that people speak about dog and everyone's a backyard breeder or a puppy farmer. You know, in what we don't like, what's the alternative of a puppy, of a backyard breeder? It's probably someone doing it commercially, which ends up being a puppy farmer because they're doing it commercially all of a sudden. So if we all want puppies, but we all want, we don't want puppy breeders. You can't just say adopt because if you get rid of the breeders, there's nothing left to adopt. So, you know, what's what's the answer? And I personally think that farms are the best places for dogs. They get they get socialised with a, a wide range of sounds and smells and animals, different aged people. And I think in a perfect world, every family all around the country would raise uh, one litter per household somewhere along their journey, not a litter a year, but just one. So those kids can get the, uh, birds chipped off them by the puppies and the puppies can do the same with the children like our puppies are incredibly socialized and they're just handled constantly by a five and a two-year-old plus all the friends that come over and we end up with beautiful dogs so I think in families and on farms is the best place to breed dogs yeah. so we love so we do standard schnauzers we used to do minis and I sold that business my share of the business to my sister and I just imported standard schnauzers so they're a bit taller I've got three in from Europe and I've got my first few litters on the ground right now, which has been about two years in the making, so I'm pretty excited. Wow. You do go out sourcing all different unique things, don't you? No one in Australia would sell me a dog, so I just went to Europe and got them. Right. Yeah. So I'm still trying to get my head around how you do all of this. And just could you give me an idea of a day in the life of Jacob Walkie? Like, you must have so much energy. Tell me, tell me a general day for you. We, um, we're setting up to homeschool as well. So I've got my boys, like my eldest Otto isn't going off to school, he's five now. So he comes with me uh, two days a week generally. And same with my youngest Theo. So I've got them a day each separately and then a day together once a week. Uh, but I get up early-ish whenever Theo wakes up normally, could be any, anywhere between five and six and we head straight to the butchery because my butchers start at 4.30 in the morning. That's their own choice because we're not a customer facing butchery. Uh, opening hours don't mean anything. To me, it doesn't impact the business at all, and my butchers want to start at 4.30 and knock off at midday. So we go in there first to make sure that we can touch base with them if we need to, any organising, uh, do handovers, I restock the freezers, pack my orders, that's sort of... I, I often laugh that I do the uh, most mundane and lowest yielding jobs across the face of the businesses, because I sort of find the spots in the business where I can't afford to pay someone to execute yet, and I just fill the gap and build it to the point that I can. So that used to be farm chores when I had 100 chickens. You know, and now I can afford to have a farm hand, but I can't afford to pay someone to pack my orders and ship them every week because there's not enough orders through that sales avenue. So I'm doing that while that builds up and then I'll outsource that, which I'm not, I'm not far away to. And then we do the rounds. So we'll go through the bike shop in the cafe, grab a coffee. Uh, I don't do any hands-on stuff in the bike shop anymore, but I've got a good management team. So we'll have a quick power hour, I've got a full-time bookkeeper, we'll have a look at some statements, 
uh, touch base with managers if there's any HR things we need to run over, go out to the farm, get the boys razzled up. Quite often I'm finding somewhere cool and quiet so the kids can nap of an evening and that's when I'll do my, my laptop work or whatever. I, I'm, I'm finished early Arvo most days and go home and do the family thing. Yeah. Probably, my day's probably not as chaotic as it might sound from the outside looking in because I've got a lot of good people and I'm not interested in, in micromanaging people and I'm probably not very good at performance managing either but what I do do is set expectations on uh, values and outcomes and motivate, I guess. There's so many little avenues I could go into, which I know our customers are going to be, or our listeners are going to be really interested in. <clears throat> but previously, your dad had some set stocked animals on the farm. Yep. And you went to him and you said, well, what if I start moving them around? Yes. You know, do you think that we could be more productive? Were you more productive? Well, it's, it's hard to quantify. Like, I, I, I believe in the rotational grazing practices that we do uh, and I believe if you follow the basics that you'll always be more productive but when I took over we had steers on a farm in the end of 2019 which was the end of the drought and then the bushfires so there was barely a blade of grass on the farm it was all dirt we had cow patties 30 centimeters wide that sat on the ground for nearly a year because everything was so beat up uh, and since then we've had beautiful wet seasons so it's really hard to sort of uh, draw a rational scientific uh, results out of that I think but when we do fence line comparisons within our own paddocks and fences and then and then with neighbours we've all, all our fences around our property are getting bent in uh, you know and I, yeah, I think, I think that's, a good, that's good yeah. enough for me I think and, and that's generally stocking double the kilograms of beef per hectare as our neighbours plus all the other animals and we're not importing hay or straw so I think Pretty productive. You've recently had Brian Wahlberg on yes. your property. Yes. Tell me what you meant there. I really just wanted to get all my team on the same page about how to grass budget, uh, how to do a grazing plan, how to read a grazing plan, and then all just be given, uh, I guess, uniform, a uniform decision-making matrix. You know that that covers our values and our mission statement. So when feed does start running out during winter or summer or whatever it is, when we have a discussion about it, there's no pressure points that this staff member thinks the paddocks should be made bigger in this one, or I think they should be made smaller. Uh, we wanted to just, because I've, I've read the books, but you know, reading the books and executing it and experiencing yourself is different from as a team being coached and, and going through real life examples at the same time. So. It was just a great opportunity to get some community in because we ended up running a workshop and getting about a bit over a dozen locals in with us to do the course with us. And good community week and then getting everyone on the same page. I think it was very valuable. Brian's a great communicator. It's nearly like having policies and procedures, isn't it? Like this, this is how we graze. Yes. And then you don't have to be watching it as much because you know that everyone's got that same system. Of course. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so. I know that the infrastructure can be low cost, but you've just bought a butchery. You must be kind of, um, like how are you financing that and is it profitable? And you know, if I'm being rude, please just tell me, but like I know that Nutrisol would not have started and been set up the way it is without Million Brains selling their farm and um, buying a business in town. Like you do need capital to, to grow. And I yep. can see that's what you're doing. Yes. So how are you managing all of this? I think this is something that really plagues regenerative agriculture, especially 
when you're using that term to classify, as I think it's quite often used, like small little bootstrap startups. And there's nothing wrong with being a startup and there's absolutely nothing wrong with bootstrapping, but any business needs capital and time to start. And I've even in just the four years that I've been farming, I've watched probably a dozen young local farms start and end within that, you know, some are going for a year and they give up because it's too hard and it's not paying and they didn't realise how much time and capital it was going to be needed. So we're, we're four years in and I've tipped in um, probably half a million dollars in, in terms of uh, cash out of my pocket and taking on debt. You know, the mortgage on the freehold of the butchery and, and finance for equipment and, and a work ute and all these different things. And I've done that with the other businesses I've set up in the past. Um, you know, so I've got, I still get a salary, I still get a, a dividend from our other businesses. And something that's been really helpful for us has been owning our own restaurant and being able to put a lot of our produce in that because if, well, if I get an oversupply of rump, because all my, I, I stockpile all my produce frozen. And if, if I see rump building up and there's 50 kilos of rump, I send a message to the chef and I said, you know, uh, rare roast beef salads on, on the menu, boys. I'm going to drop off 50 kilos of rump tomorrow and, and we get along with it. And I, I always think that's it. People quite often say to me, oh, you know, you're so lucky that you can do that. I said, well, go and start your own restaurant and then you'll be lucky that you can put your own produce through it as well because we started that restaurant. From, we took debt on to start that restaurant as well. Uh, so I've, I've funded a lot of it. Uh, and are we profitable? The I'd say the last six months, We've uh, finally gotten to a point where we're cash flow positive and I'm, I'm buying new infrastructure and making new investments based off the, the profit of the farming business. So we're, it's taken us half a million dollars in four years, basically, to That's get there. That's quick. Yep. Yeah. Yep. If I had more money, I would have done it quicker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so you had the cafe. So you had your bike shop. What made you open the cafe and the bike shop? So my family purchased uh, Cycle Station in 2011, and a couple of years and it grew exponentially. You know, we 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 doubled the turnover the first 12 months, and then we compound doubled that again, and then we did it again. We were busier and busier. Uh, just basic things: customer service, range, price, uh, and then the old bowling club across the road came up for sale, which was owned by the state. And it got passed in at auction. So my father rung up and made a low ball offer on it and we, we got that. So we demolished that building, the old derelict. We had to kick, we, the front page of the board of mouths, everyone was kicking up a stink because we're ruining this heritage building and it had squatters living in it for the last six years. It's like you didn't care about it when it was being yeah. vandalized and all of a sudden it's beautiful. We demolished that and we developed our new building where we have cycle station and we thought, well, Lycra and espresso goes hand in hand. So we carved out a corner of the building. It's only 100 meters or something. And we gave it to a couple of real estate agents to list, to find a tenant. My family did food decades ago and said never again. It's too, the hours were too big and too much cleaning and inventory control and all of this. One of the real estate agents actually laughed, laughed at us and said, that's the worst spot in town. Uh, I'm not even gonna bother putting it on the books. See yourself a favor and put bikes in it. And we met with a few local restaurateurs and no one was interested enough. So we got forced into a corner to fill it ourselves because it was sitting idle. And now it's a fantastic business. We wouldn't be without it. And hospitality to me is so interesting because you've got a business where you can turn over your inventory two or three times a week. You know, my bike shop, I'm happy to do it three or four times a year. So it's such a different uh, thing. So that's how we got started with the cafe. And now it's apart from my wife's sort of top level 
you know, involvement with a bit of hiring and some menu planning, it, it basically runs itself now. Yeah. So the cafe came before farm. Cafe was 2014, end of 2014, so bike shop 2011, cafe 2014, and my first interest in farming was somewhere in 2019. Yeah, it's all fine. I mean, a bike shop to a farm is very different, but that cafe to the farm, yeah, yeah. Yep. That's, that's pretty The cafe probably wasn't an interest, um, like we just, we, it was more of a necessity, the bike shop. My family's got this rule, and it's been sort of this little, I don't know, dinner table topic for years, is um and this is so counter to what you're told in the media and, and in like business coaching but our rule has always been don't buy a business in an industry you're interested in because you're not buying a passion you're buying a business and i know that this is backwards because everyone says follow your dreams yeah, and chase your passion yeah, but our our decision was like my father used to own a record store and when i finished school i worked for him selling cds and dvds for four years my dad hates music and so he would order records and CDs and tapes and whatever it was and stock them based purely on what his clients wanted. And we'd go all around the country on holidays and we'd go in and visit every little mum and dad record store and you could, within a minute of walking into the shop, you could always tell what music they liked, the owners, because the rack at the front of the shop would have the latest the latest three or four country music releases on it or it'd be a rap or it'd be metal. And dad and I would look at these titles and we knew that all of them were poor sellers. And, and we're very uh, confident it wasn't that that's what, like you'd be, on the, you'd be on Bondi Beach in a music shop in Bondi Beach and they've got Slim Dusty and Roy <laughs> Orbison and Lee Koenigan, three great artists, not what people in Bondi Beach are necessarily listening to. So they let their um, own bias and prejudice dictate the market. And so when we purchased the bicycle shop, we weren't interested in bikes. Like we, we now we're passionate cyclists. We love cycling, especially electric bikes. They're just so much fun. We weren't interested in bikes. And so what we did was we followed the market. And in 2012, I hosted an electric bike expo in the shop. And electric bikes didn't really get adopted properly in Australia until probably 2020, eight years ahead, because people were asking for it. And all these other bike stores let their prejudice get in front of them. I used to tell the staff, if our customers want tandem bicycles and tricycles, we'll put it in because I'm not some bleeding heart road racing pedigree guy who wants to sell road bikes. So that's always been the mentality. But the farm has flipped that on its head and it's become a, it's become a passion project. But those business fundamentals of meeting the market are still ingrained. So I think they're still serving a purpose in terms of just uh, my own perception on things. Uh, let's talk about your chicken tractors. Yes. They're quite creative. You don't buy them, you make them. How do you make them? I can't wrap my head around the economics of buying them. You They're know, expensive, you, aren't they? I think the last time I looked it was um, $25,000 and you can run 400 or so hens in it. And you need, I think the instructions say you need two hands of labor, two people for three days to build it and you've got to supply your own roof. And they're absolutely, like, oh, there's a bunch of different brands. I'm not, I'm not taking the mickey out of any brand they've got amazing technology in them like you can level the lane boxes so when your tractor's on uneven ground and your eggs don't crack but we fix that with a piece of astroturf bent you know or um automatic doors like we bought an automatic door off ebay for a hundred dollars you know you don't need all these shiny whiz bang things so i buy i do the richard perkins eggmobile now uh, we purchase caravans if, if I see a caravan on Gumtree or Trading Post or Facebook for under three or four hundred bucks, especially if it's got two axles, I race around and I buy it. And uh, I've built up relationships with all the local tow truck drivers and they'll go and get it for a slab of beer or something for me. 
and then we wreck the caravan off the top, we drive the tractor into it, we get the big plug-in angle grinder with a 12-inch disc on it, and we, we go hell for leather and we rip it to shreds. We keep some cool stuff out of it too. We've got stainless steel sinks and mattresses and all this stuff that we can sell on eBay. Sometimes I get my money back plus some by wrecking them and flipping all the bits inside of them. Trolley jacks and all sorts of fun stuff. And then we, I've got my own Lucas mill, so we mill our own timber now. I get recycled uh, tin sheeting, corrugate color bond or whatever from local shed companies. Like local shed companies actually get their roller doors for the sheds delivered wrapped in sheets so they don't scratch in transit. And then they just cut them off and throw them out. So I say, keep them for me and I'll pick them up every three or four months and I'll bring you a box of beef and we do tradies and everyone's happy. And so we build them out of that. They're, they're rickety and they're wonky uh, and, and they squeak when you tie them around the paddocks and the chickens absolutely love them. Yeah. Well, I've never had a formal complaint from a chook about them. So I'm assuming <laughs> that they like them. Oh, they're gorgeous. They're up quite high too, like when you get up into them. Yeah. Yeah, so how long does it take to make one and how many people do you need? Oh, in the beginning, I was getting cousins who were chippies in and everything because we were just going off photos on Facebook. So we'd, we'd go on to Ridgedale Permaculture or we'd go on to Joel Salatin or whoever's Facebook page or website and we'd zoom in and try to figure out what the angle was. And then we built the first one, probably took almost five of us two days. But then I got a friend of mine who's a draftsman to actually do me It's a set of plans, which are 30 steps with cut lists, angles, lengths, and materialists and everything, which I sell these plans now for people. But now, when we have all that information and we can have all the goods ready on farm, um, two blokes could knock us together in a day and a half. Yeah. Yep. Did you say you sell the plans now? Yes. Oh my gosh, you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> You've always got this business mind, haven't you? Just ticks along that it's like 50 bucks and yeah, yeah. saves people. Yeah. Like it, it saved, what does it save me? Save, saves me probably accumulatively probably saved me seven days of labor by having yeah. solid plans that we can just reference off and Something do it. Something we've done it before. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you have any regrets? With the farming? Yeah. Uh, do I have any regrets? I don't think so. I think, uh, I don't, you know, pe people have that saying, I don't have any regrets. I sort of don't like that saying because it, I, I, I think it minimizes uh, the effect of lessons learned. Um, I sort of wish, I wish I started breeding cattle a bit earlier uh, so I could be, like I, I keep looking at this, I'm in my 30s, I've probably got 15 years of high pace work left in me and then maybe another 30 years after that and I'm knocking on the door, you know, I'm, I'm just about done. So I'm looking at you breeding a new generation of cattle every couple of years, might only have 20 or 30 generations in me, like that sort of gets up my nose a little bit because I want to see how far I can push this thing. but. Two, three years ago, it didn't suit the enterprise. The market was different. I hadn't found a breed that I was passionate about, so nothing stands out yet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't put it out there. I actually, I wish I bought land two years ago before COVID. Like my wife and I were probably just about in a place where we could have bought land. There was a farm that we really liked, and we thought, oh, it's a lot of money, uh, but it's a, it's a nice, it's a nice block of land. It's probably, and we, we sat on it, and then we actually called up and said we'd take it, and it had just just sold for the same price. Yeah. Uh, and now it's, it's, it's at least doubled in value in the last two years. So we'll say that's it. If you want, if you want to regret, you can say that wow. I entered the property market There'll earlier. There'll be a reason why it happened. <laughs> so there, there, everything happens for a reason. Um, okay, uh, let's talk about the butchery. So four years you've had the farming set up. 
and then two years in, you've bought this good tree. Yes. Um, I went in there on the weekend, I've joined up, and uh, it's not staffed, and it's all frozen meat. Um, how did you think of that? We, we purchased the butchery out of a necessity. So for those listening, it's a, it's a boning room. It's a, so we, we purchased the freehold because it became very um, apparent to us very quickly that we were not gonna be able to build a meaningful business in terms of um, you know, revenue and kilograms of meat produced by outsourcing processing to local butchers. And that's not a slight at any of these local butchers, but they've got their own businesses you know, they're doing their set turnover and their staff accordingly and they don't have time to worry about my cow a week that I want done or whatever it might be. So we took production into our own hands, purchased this freehold and renovated it and got going, put a butcher out the back. And uh, now we custom process for about 15 other local farmers, which is another whole business in its own right. And it's a 75 year old freehold. It's very well known around the area for having small goods and it's a famous, old famous store. And this retail space was sort of niggling at me in the back of my head. I'm like, this is a wasted opportunity, but I could not justify uh, in a business sense having anyone sitting there selling the, selling the meat. And I was chatting to Anthony Ainsworth, who's a local um, small goods at Murray River Smokehouse, used to be Butts Smokehouse. I was talking to him because he was giving me a few tips. I needed some help. I'm, I've never been shy about cold calling and I'm pushing myself into business, people's businesses. And I'm asking pretty, like ask the question, the worst thing they can do is say no, right? Yeah. And just don't take offence and just hope that they don't take offence. It's, it's all about, in, well, I think it's all about intent. Yeah. So if you're going into somebody's business to, to sniff out pricing and margins and steal staff, you know, feel guilty about it. But yeah. if you genuinely are interested and you earnestly want to learn for yourself and your own business, you know, there's, there's, there's no harm, no foul. So I was talking to Anthony and he said, oh, when are you going to open that storefront? I think this was in December. We'd settled on the butchery in September. So in December, he goes, when are you going to open that storefront? I said, oh, never. You know, we're not interested. We're just processing. He goes, you'll have it open in March. And it really ticked me off. I've known him. He's a customer in the bike shop for a long time. Jeez, it ticked me off because he set me this goalpost yeah. that you're going to have it open in three months. And I said, it doesn't make any financial sense. I can't do it. I'm too busy getting everything else going. And I had it open 1st of April. I missed out on a day. Oh, wow. uh, all the tradies dicked me around. But I couldn't afford the labor. And I thought... Vending machine, walk-in vending machine, hacking, and I was literally thinking, put the swipe credit card and it spits the rump out, you know, the turner. Yeah, push. yeah. Um, couldn't find that it, to hold the volume and scale that I wanted, but I ended up blending the system of 24-hour gym, so monitored access with a unique code and, and uh, then high-def video surveillance with the use of an app on your smartphone where you can scan the barcodes and, and pay with your debit card. So we've been having that running for almost two years now. The app, it seemed to have other businesses that used it as well. Like it's really easy to use. Mm -hmm. It just, and it even takes you to your address. Yes, it's geocache, um, so it knows where you are. Yeah. So it's a, it's a, I think it's out of America, it's called Express Checkout. And a heap of places in America and Canada use it, a few places. If you log on to the app, I think the next closest store to mine is in Hong Kong City, which is pretty funny. Uh, but it's made, it was purposely built for supermarkets in America so that when customers were shopping, they could scan things as it went into their trolley and hit pay and then show it through the express lane and then bypass both a normal cashier checkout and a self-service checkout because they've already done it. So it's reduced wages, reduced congestion, all of that sort of thing. And we just modified it slightly to uh, be able to work in a self-checkout system so with, with no staff. So How did you find it? Like 
heaps of Googling. Yeah. Google, Google, scroll through heaps of pages, contact companies, do a Zoom, realize that theirs didn't quite work and they, they'd refer someone and took me took me weeks. There's all these beautiful apps. There's so much technology and information and knowledge out there. And if you have a crazy idea about something that you've never heard of, I could almost guarantee that there's a company out there that specializes in it. But finding it is really challenging because maybe you're searching in English and they're a German company and everything's in Deutsch on their website. So it's just about, again, getting yourself out there and asking questions. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I just think that you've brought such creativity and a whole new system into agriculture. So well done. Thank you. I'm just, I, I hope that other farmers look at what you do and think, how can I do something like that? And in the butchery, um, it's also other farmers that, you know, might be hobby farmers that want to know who's killing or who's cutting. It's not an actual abattoir. That's right, not I yet. Have, I know. <laughs> That's potentially in your plans. Um, yeah, it, again, it'll be out of necessity because the, like when I started the butchery two years ago, we had four local abattoirs servicing private kills, which is a farm wanting a slaughter and then the farm received the beast back or it goes to the butcher or whatever it might be. And now there's two. Uh, purely just based on economics, two of them um, don't bother delivering to local butchers anymore because it's not worth their time. The volume's so low, the drive into town's not worth it. So, uh, not only would we like to take slaughter into our own hands so that we can have more control, uh, reclaim our beef cheeks and our offal and our hides and, and get the whole animal um, back, which we can't currently do, but I just think as the industry centralises that it's, we're going to need it. Like if, if my local avatar, who I have a good relationship with and I enjoy working with but if they said sorry Jake it doesn't make sense anymore to do your processing my business is kaput like the whole thing's over and I'm driving it to um to Yass or Melbourne to get processing done so I'd, I'd like to do it but it's a, again you know necessity breeds that creation mm. yeah okay and if if other farmers wanted to to have their uh animals processed by your butchery, how yes. does that work? So they just have to uh, call us and make a booking. So a new client would call me, I'd email them a price list, and then they would make a booking with the respective abattoir. So whether it's Wangaratta for beef and lamb or, or vanilla for pork. And then when they deliver the animals there, they fill out on a form that it's under my account because they won't they won't book it to individuals. It has to be booked to a butchery, which is another reason why I had to buy it because couldn't get things regularly booked using, using other butchers' accounts. And then the abattoirs actually deliver it back to me, and then we cut and package it how the customers requested. We do um, barcodes, custom logo on it, pricing, whatever the consumer wants, it's all cry-backed, sausage, mince, everything. And then we can either ship it to the customer, so we have some clients that farm down near Melbourne, and we ship the produce down to them, or they can come pick it up from the butchery and do their own distribution to the consumers. So like I said earlier, we're doing that for our 15 local farmers at the moment from a range of uh, beef, pork, lamb, tiny bit of goat for some people. And I'm, I'm an open book. I'm, I'm trying to help these people grow their businesses because it's all about um, community, not competition. So I'm constantly trying to uh, not not give them advice, I guess, but just get them moving, give them yeah. some motivation. Yeah. yeah, that's a new way of doing business, isn't it? So build, lifting everyone up and working together rather than seeing someone as competition and... Well, absolutely, and even across my whole business, if I, if, I, if I had whole families buying my produce, I think last time I worked it out, I'd only be feeding 100 families. 
Yeah, that's like just about everything. And how many families are there in Albury-Wodonga, you know, and, and let alone the country. So it's not the Jake Walkie show. It's about getting good food in front of people. You've got an event coming up soon, um, the Australian Beef Initiative. Initiative. Yes. Tell us about that. So there, there was a group that I actually met through custom processing. So they're from Melbourne. They messaged me and they said, we want to process this beef. Could you do it for us? And I said, yeah, no worries. And they've dropped it off at the abs and we've got it. We've chopped it up. And then this is one of the ones that I had to ship down to Melbourne. And he sent me the packing list and he said, here's all the clients, you know, first names, 20 kilos of mixed beef. Uh, and then on the, and that's how I was going to box it for him to palletize it and ship it down to Melbourne. And one column had payment type, and it was um, fiat. Now you don't often see people writing down, you know, cash or bank transfer as a pay payment type with the word fiat. So I was like, that's interesting. And then underneath it, it was Bitcoin. It was fiat, fiat, Bitcoin, fiat. Oh my god, that's uh, curious. So when I was on the phone to him next, organising logistics, I said, oh, you sold some meat for Bitcoin. He said, yeah, and he was all excited straight away. It was all about Bitcoin and we hit it off and formed a bit of a relationship and I just found these people really interesting and they were actually setting up a co-op. Uh, so this is city people that don't have any farming experience setting up a co-op, trying to help bridge the, the knowledge gap and divide between consumers and farmers in a range of ways, like it's really varied. But basically a lot of people in the city don't re don't, still don't realise you could buy meat direct off the farmer. So what if we made that really easy for them and motivated more farmers to sell direct to the consumer? The reason most, there's a lot of good farmers that do grass-fed and finished animals with, with no drenching and holistic plant grazing and beautiful animals and then just sell it into commodity market because that's where it has to go. Where else are they going to sell it? Absolutely. So this group, they're not even trying to facilitate the transaction in terms of we'll sell it and take a percent. They're holding events to... to um, motivate, uh, encourage, uh, educate both consumers and producers on this is potential ways that this can happen here. We've brought in a speaker, Texas Slim from Texas in America, who's doing it over there. And they've actually um, got an abattoir set up, got a website selling beef in the community with this exact same way. So we've got doctors coming to do keynote presentations. We, we've got farmers. We've got Texas. Uh, then we've also got one of the guys at the end of the day is going to be talking about Bitcoin for anyone interested, because there's a big, you know, the regen space, which sort of flows into, there's, a, there's quite a few that are sort of these organic permaculture, sovereign, um, self-responsible, self-governance types, and it's all, it's all fun and interesting to us. So, and I'm reasonably committed to hosting any function of almost any type on our farm, because I believe farms should be community hubs in the environment, not these dangerous, smelly, dusty places tucked away on the back roads. Like people should be coming to the farms for community, which is what I think. So when these guys said, do you want to host our first event? I said, let me at it, let's do it. Yeah. 12th of Feb? 12th of Feb, Sunday, 12th of Feb, all day. Yep. Yeah. yeah, wonderful. Okay, and to find out more, they can go to your website. It's on, the tickets are on Eventbrite. So yeah. if they search Walkie Farm on Eventbrite, yeah. we're there. Wow, I just feel like you've, you've just got your web out everywhere and you're making um, great change. So um, I'd love to now take you for a walk around Nutrisol and show you the web cool. farms and their grains uh, and Jill's garden. Um, yeah, and maybe pick your brain about how you think we might be able to, you know, take some of your amazing entrepreneurial ideas. Sure. Yeah. Self-service at Nutrisoil. Wow, well, I thought of it. Like, since seeing yours, yeah. it's like going to be a petrol, you know. Yes, yeah, yeah, cool. Don't, don't worry about that. 
So thank you, Jake. Pleasure. Uh, I just really enjoyed this conversation. I think it's going to bring a whole lot of freedom and uh, just creativity to agriculture to people that listen. So thank you. Pleasure. Follow the Biological Farming Roundtable podcast. Share it with your friends and networks. I'm Nicola Maddock and I work at Nutrisoil, a liquid biological fertiliser made from a big worm farm whose purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food.